Uh, let me see a show of hands. How many of you have heard more than one or two sermons focused on the crucifixion or the resurrection of Jesus? Any of you? Yeah, a few of you, a lot of you, yeah. All right, now, how many of you have heard sermons focused on the ascension of Jesus? Show of hands. Not nearly as many. As, uh, some of you have, but not nearly as many. And it, it's an important doctrine, but it's been kind of neglected by a lot of the church these days. I was trying to think of good analogies for ways to think about the ascension. It's kind of like, let's say there was a presidential campaign. And so the people running, they go through the campaign. It's a long, hard, painful, costly campaign. And at the end, there's a victor, President Obama. So, you know, President Obama wins the election. The campaign is kind of like the crucifixion. (laughs) You die a lot. And winning the election, the election night when the votes are all in and you find out that you win, that's a little bit like the resurrection. But... The uh, inauguration, that's a little bit like the ascension because it's at the inauguration that you actually begin to rule. There's a period between the time that you win the election to the time you actually serve as president. And the ascension is kind of like that. It's a big deal. And, and we see that the early church saw it as a big deal. It's in all the major creeds. It's in the uh, uh, Nicene Creed. It's in the... Uh, uh, Athanasian Creed, it's in our, the creed that we've been walking through over the last uh, several weeks, the Apostles' Creed. And in fact, in the creed, the Apostles' Creed, there's as much attention given to the ascension as there is to the resurrection. We're told that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from which he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Uh, so the, the ascension gets a lot of play there, and it, it gets a lot of play in the scriptures as well. Um, John says in uh, chapter 16, I came from the Father, and I entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Or in Ephesians 4, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Or in Hebrews 7, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Or 1 Peter 3. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. These are just a few of the uh, passages, verses in the, uh, in the New Testament talking about the ascension of Jesus, what it means for Jesus to be raised and then ascended to the right hand of God the Father. So today we're going to talk about the ascension. What is the ascension all about? Why is it important? And to do that, we're going to work through four questions. So if you look in your bulletin, there's a little handout sheet. Four questions. What happened to Jesus? Where did Jesus go? What is Jesus doing now? And what does this mean for us as we follow Jesus in our day-to-day life here on earth? So what happened to Jesus? 
Well, he ascended into heaven. Let me read the passage, Acts 1, 1 through 11. I'll start with verse, uh, verse one to give context. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the heavens, up into the skies he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stay here looking into the sky? The same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So, We're told in Acts 1 several things. The first thing we're told is that Jesus was taken up. He was taken up by God. God came and took him and brought him home. And it also tells that he was taken up bodily. Earlier in the text in Acts 1, we're told that as Jesus was eating with them after his resurrection, he was talking to them. Bodies eat, spirits don't. And it's clear that Jesus was in his human body was taken up into heaven. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the same body that was crucified, the same body that was raised incorruptible is the same body that was taken up to sit at the right hand of God the Father. That means that there's in heaven today a God-man. Jesus, fully human and fully divine. That's really good news for us because if in the incarnation deity entered into the human race, then at the ascension, humanity, humanity and and deity combined in Jesus in this case, humanity entered into the realm of God. And what scripture tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of that And that we also, we humanity, we as humanity, will one day enter into the realm of God. 
There's a place for human beings with human bodies in the very presence of God. John 14 tells us that right now, Jesus is preparing a place for us. I don't know exactly what that means, but it tells us that he's preparing a place for us and one day he's going to come back and take us to be with him, bodily with him, human beings with him in heaven, in the heavenlies, in the realm of God. Third thing this passage tells us is that a cloud hid Jesus. Now, some of you may remember from our long study through the Old Testament that the clouds, the clouds represent the actual presence of God. So, there's, so what, what this passage is saying is that Jesus was taken up by God and he was in the presence of God. He was taken up, hidden by the cloud, the cloud representing the presence of God. We see this in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai, where the mountain is uh, enveloped in clouds, or we see it in, as the Israelites were going through the, the, the desert. You know, they were led by what? What were they led by? A pillar of fire and a cloud, right, yeah. Pillar of clouds, pillar of fire. Psalm 104.3 says, He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. This is an image of God as, as a warrior, as victor. So when Jesus is hidden by a cloud, this is an allusion to God's presence and it's, it's an, an expression of Jesus being victorious God being victorious in and through Jesus. So what the ascension does is it says to us that Jesus left behind his sufferings and he entered into his triumph. That's a key point. See, while Jesus was here on earth, he suffered. He suffered, he bled, he died. He but what happens at the ascension is this is the statement says no more. No more crown of thorns, no more insults, no more beatings, no more whippings, no more nails. He who suffered more than any man will suffer no more. Jesus left behind his sufferings and entered into his triumph. The ascension makes it clear that Jesus had completed his work of salvation. It also tells us that he stepped out of the limits of space and time and became unlimited. Paul writes in Philippians 2 that Jesus being very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used for his own benefit, but instead he took on the form of a human being. What, what Paul is saying there is that Jesus, when he left heaven to come to earth, left behind all of the privileges, all the rights, all of the powers of heaven. He limited himself. He self-limited. And while he lived on earth, he lived as a human being. He didn't live on earth as God with all the full power of Godhead. He lived as a human being. What that meant, for example, was that he was constrained by space and time. When he was in Galilee, he wasn't in Jerusalem. When he was um, in um, Capernaum, he wasn't somewhere else. He was limited by space and time. But when he ascended, 
He didn't just kind of, he didn't ascend into outer space somewhere. Rather, he ascended, he was taken up by God, and he was removed from space and time into the immediate sphere of God's holy presence. There are other implications to that. When Jesus ascended, when he ascended to heaven, he didn't leave us behind. He didn't abandon us. Instead, what he did, because he's no, he's, he sent us his spirit, and by his spirit, he's no longer geographically limited. That means he can be with me where I am. He can be with Ben where Ben is. He can be with Molly where Molly is. He can be with, he can be with all of us wherever we are. He can be with all of his people at all times, in all circumstances, in all places, through the sending of his Holy Spirit, who now lives within us who believe. Ray Pritchard puts it this way. When we stumble, he is there. When we fail, he is there. When we feel his presence, he's there. When we think he has left us, he is there. When we doubt him, he is there. When we forget him, he is there. When we give in to temptation, he is there. Just when we need him most, Jesus is always there. But that can only be true because of the ascension. Because at the ascension, Jesus left behind space and time and all the limitations of humanity in that sense. And he sent his spirit to indwell each of us so that he can be with us at all times. That's a pretty big deal. That's a huge deal. Now, where did Jesus go? Well, we're told that he went to sit at the Father's right hand. God the Father Almighty, he went to sit at his right hand. Now, that's, we use that sort of a bit in our culture. We talk about somebody being, oh, this is my right hand guy, my right hand man, my right hand woman, you know, but, but, it's, it's, but in that context, in the context in which this was first uh, written, it meant that you, that you are, were in a place of power and authority and exaltation. So what this means to, to sit at God's right hand is that Jesus was enthroned as king. He was enthroned as king. Now let me read another passage. I'm reading now from Daniel 7, 13 to 14. The context is that Daniel is having this vision, involved, kind of long, involved vision, but then verse 13 says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. And this was Jesus' favorite self-designation. This is the way Jesus referred to himself. In my vision at night, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He was raised up, hidden in the clouds, and then here it says, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. This is a way of talking about God the Father. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. 
He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus' kingdom cannot be destroyed and it will not pass away. He was given all glory, power, all, glory, all authority, glory, and sovereign power. And he holds it for eternity. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says that uh, Jesus received... Well, let me read this whole passage. I'm going to start with verse 6. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has received at his ascension the name that is above every name. That's what Paul is saying here in Philippians 2. John says in Revelation 3.21 that Jesus conquered and sat down at the Father's right hand where he receives unending praise, we're told in Revelation 5. And then Paul, again, going to Ephesians 1, verses 18 to 23, Paul is talking about the power that God used to raise Jesus, the, the, the kind of power that God has, his incomparably great power in we who believe. And he says, that power is like the power that raised, that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God. And Paul uses four different words to try to describe the mighty power of God. And four words are not enough. But then he says that Jesus was raised and sits at the right hand of God, the Father, and that God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. Everything over all principalities and powers and authorities. He's raised them up and seated them at his right hand to be head over everything. What Paul is saying is, Jesus is king. And at the ascension, he received his crown. He's enthroned in the throne of heaven. Now, it does raise a question. If Jesus is king... Why don't we see all things under his power and authority right now? Peter addresses that question in his uh, Pentecost sermon 
in Acts 2. Peter does that by quoting from Psalm 110.1, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What scripture teaches is that there is a period right now, the period between Jesus' ascension and the period when he will return, where Jesus reigns as king, but he won't fully, his kingdom will not be fully consummated until he returns. Right now what is happening is that God is, God the Father is making his enemies a footstool for Jesus' feet, but there will be one day when every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, and we get a chance to do it now. God's kingdom has been inaugurated through the enthronement of Jesus. He now sits on heaven's throne and he's going to return one day to consummate his kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven. That's what we pray for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer is going to be answered. So God's word of encouragement to each of us is that it is Christ who is seated on the highest throne. It's the Christ who loves us, the Christ who's over all powers and authorities who's going to sit on that, who sits on that throne. There is no power, no throne above the power and throne of Jesus. And Jesus is our God, our King, our Savior, the one who loves us. So we have no reason to fear as we go through this life. We will experience pain and trouble and hardship and suffering as we go through this life. Jesus told us that. In this world you will have tribulation, but fear not, I have overcome the world. So what is Jesus doing now? The short answer is that he is continuing the work that he began when he was on earth in his human body. Going back to Acts 1 again, the way uh, Luke puts it is, in my first book, my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up to heaven. The implication is that in this second book that I'm writing now, that I'm giving to you now, Theophilus, I'm continuing the story of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is continuing the work that he began to do and teach He's doing it through his people, through you and me, through his people, empowered by his spirit. The ascended Lord, Jesus, sends his spirit to be present with his people to empower them for worldwide mission and to transform them, to transform us so that we'll be, so that we'll be enabled to live new lives that reflect our King Jesus. 
That's what we're told in Romans 8, in 2 Corinthians 3, and a whole bunch of other places. Because Jesus ascended, he was able to send his spirit. And because he sent his spirit, we are empowered by his indwelling presence to complete his mission on earth and to become people who more and more and more are transformed into his likeness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Amen to that. We're going to talk about this more in a couple of weeks when we focus on uh, the Holy Spirit in, in, in our creeds uh, series. But hold on to this until then. He sends his spirit to empower us and to enable us and to transform us. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 8, when he ascended on high, he took many captives. He took captives, death, sin, evil, the grave, the principalities and power. He took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. The gifts he gave were gifted leaders, some, some to be apostles and prophets and all that. He gave gifted people to help lead us. And he also gave each of us gifts to use in ministry. Each of us who belong to Jesus have been gifted by Jesus for ministry. That means that we can complete the work that he began on earth. We can be his channels. We can do what Jesus wants to do so that Jesus completes his work through us. Jesus is also interceding for us. The word intercede means to speak up on behalf of someone else. Christ is right now in the Father's presence, speaking up for us. He's praying for us. 1 John 2 says that he is our eternal advocate. We have an advocate in heaven defending us. So the scene is something like this. You get the picture of it in Romans 8, 31 to 34. The scene is that there's, there's a courtroom and uh, you're the one on trial. And the devil is standing before the judge. He says, see this guy, Lou? This is who he is. And before the judge, he lays out every single sin that I've ever committed in my life. It takes him a long time. <laughs> a really long time. Everything I've done that I wasn't supposed to do, everything I should have done that I didn't, every thought that I had that wasn't pure, or holy, or good, every time I lost my temper, every time I was selfish, every time I was stupid, he lays all of that out. And it doesn't look good for me. It doesn't look good for me at all. And then the devil kind of finishes and he's got this smirk on his face and then Jesus stands up. He's my lawyer. He's my advocate. And he says, Father, all those sins have been paid for. And he holds up his hands with the holes in them. 
as I paid for them. And the father looks at Jesus and he looks at me and he looks at me through Jesus and he says, case dismissed, you're free. Amen. Amen. He intercedes for us. He's our eternal advocate. And I mentioned a few minutes he's preparing a place for us even now. So what does all of this mean for us? Well, let me sum up for a sec. The ascension completes Jesus' earthly mission. It signifies his enthronement on the throne of heaven as our heavenly king. Jesus has completed his father's mission. He rules now with all authority and he intercedes with all compassion and sympathy as our mediator, as our high priest. So what does this mean for us? It means that we ought to enthrone him in the highest place in our lives. So we worship Jesus as our great king. What does it mean to worship? It means that we give him the worth that is due him, the worth we we acknowledge, we proclaim who he is and what he has done and how worthy he is. And we do that with our words and we do it with our lives because we declare with our lives by giving him the central place in our lives that he's worthy of everything. He's worthy of the central place in our affections, in our attention, in our ambitions. We put him at the central place of our lives. We also witness to his goodness and salvation. Jesus is exalted now. But before he was exalted, he suffered. Before the cross, before the crown was the cross. He suffered and was crucified. He died and was buried. And all of that was on our behalf. All of that was because he loves us and wants us to be saved. He wants us to know him. We bear witness so that the world will know how good our king is. And we bear witness to Jesus because he is worthy of all the world's glory and honor and praise. We also welcome his presence and we obey his commands. Because we know he's good and wants only good for us, we choose to be with him. We choose to joyfully obey his commands. Joyfully obey his commands. I remember when I first met my wife, I figured all kinds of ways, all kinds of ways to spend time with her. Because, oh man. I just wanted to be with her. And thanks be to God, she wanted to be with me. (laughs) Thanks be to God, we're still together. And we want to be together. We have a God in heaven who loves us with an unquenchable, with a fierce, undying love. 
He wants to be with us. And he's good, oh, so good. There's no one else that we ought to want to be with more. And he actually knows what he's doing all the time. He knows us. He knows everything about us. He knows how we're made, how we take together. He knows what's on the inside. He knows what our sweet spot is. He knows what we were made for. So when he gives us commands, they're not capricious. They're commands birthed out of love and wisdom and power and understanding. And every one of those commands is for our good. Every one of them. Whether we see it at the time or not, every one of them is for our good. We ought to joyfully obey his commands because we know he's good. And we know he's good at his job as king. We also take our worries to him. Jesus, the king of the universe, is also our great friend. We have a friend in high places. We have a friend in the highest place. So when we're struggling, we can look to him and come before him and he'll help us. We can bring our prayers to him. We can bring our anxieties, our worries to him because he will hear and he will act on our behalf for our good. We work, too, to his glory and we bear fruit in honor of Jesus. By his power, we love and we serve and we sacrifice and we forgive. We do all things to the best of our abilities because as Paul says in Colossians 3, we do them for Jesus. In Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake. And we wait for his return in certain hope of a glorious future. This Jesus, Luke writes in in Acts 1, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. At his return, Jesus will execute divine judgment. He will vindicate his people. He will judge his enemies. He will return as judge and king. We'll talk about that next week. He will also abolish Injustice, he will end suffering. He will destroy death. And his kingdom of truth and righteousness and love will be fully displayed, fully consummated. And we will be with him forever in that kingdom. So we wait for his return in certain hope of a glorious, glorious future. Let me close with this. We, we live in a world that seems to have almost innumerable options. In a lot of ways, that's a good thing. But in some ways, it's not such a good thing. Because we like to hedge our bets. 
We don't like to commit ourselves to anything because we're afraid we're gonna miss out on something. If we say yes to one thing, we're gonna miss out on something better somewhere else. We like to hedge our bets. Some of you are sitting on a fence with Jesus. You're still hedging your bets. And maybe you have really good reasons for doing that. Good reasons, not trivial reasons. But you're still hedging your bets, still sitting on a fence with Jesus. And so I want to ask you to consider, to think about a few questions. If you hold back from entrusting yourself to Jesus, what will you do with your guilt and your shame and your brokenness? Who else can sympathize and cleanse and forgive like Jesus? Where will you take your loneliness, your hurt, your sorrow, your pain? Who else can befriend like Jesus or comfort like Jesus? Or heal and restore like Jesus? How will you find direction and meaning and purpose for your life that's bigger than just yourself? Who knows better than Jesus the purpose of your creation? He was there. Who else knows you better than Jesus and loves you more than Jesus? And who will you turn to when you stand before God one day, the holy God of the universe? Who will you turn to as your advocate if you've rejected Jesus as your advocate? We like to hedge our bets but I want to say to you strongly, it's costly to follow Jesus, but it is not a risk. It's a sure thing, an absolute sure thing. It's costly to follow Jesus, but it's worth it. How many of you wish that years ago you'd invested in Google or in Facebook or in Apple or Microsoft when they did their IPOs. They were costly to buy shares at the time. But nobody regrets, nobody who did it then regrets it now. And if you could feel that way about mere stocks, mere money, how much more worth it is to get off the fence and entrust yourself to the God who loves you. Jesus Christ, the King who died for you and promises to be with you for all eternity. God determined to create human beings and through his son Jesus, he enabled them to triumph over evil and to be exalted into the glory of his eternal presence. In Christ, we have access into the heavenly realm. Because Jesus ascended, so shall we who believe. We shall stand in the presence of God, complete and perfect and whole and fully alive. 
so alive that everything before that will feel like we were in a stupor, in a daze. And we shall see Jesus, our King, face to face, where we will be made like him. That's what Jesus wants for us. I hope that's what you want for yourself. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful, so grateful that you are here in our midst. We're so grateful, Lord, for the sending of your Son. We're so grateful, Lord Jesus, that you came and took on all the limitations of this earth and suffered like no human being has ever suffered. And we are so glad that you rose from the dead, ascended into the right hand of God, and you prepare a place for us now. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing on our behalf, loving us, interceding for us, preparing a place for us. Lord Jesus, even now by your spirit, move our minds and our hearts. Help us to see and to think more clearly than we ever have before. Help us to see you more clearly than we ever have. We ask this in your name. Amen.